Welcome to the audiobook speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is a producer at Hachette Audio. Lisa Kahn, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Hey, Rich. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you could make it. This this is a long time coming. I think the I first know. time I wrote to you was a couple of years ago. And I know that you are one of the busiest people in this industry. And so I'm I'm not surprised uh, that, it, that it has taken this long, but I'm so glad you finally had a chance to come in. Oh, thank you, Rich. Um, yes, I, well, I am glad and I'm sorry it took so long, but you know, I'm, I'm glad we're finally doing this. And yeah, no, don't be sorry. I, I think of I it this totally way. The wine that. that I'm drinking has had a chance to age even a little bit more <laughs> while we were waiting. But that's, that's yeah, fantastic. and actually, I think everyone's really busy. But to be fair, I just think I'm really bad about, um, I'm just not as great at time management. Uh. But but yeah, I, it's been crazy. And I have actually, I felt it's always, it's been one of those things, you know, how we all have these imaginary to-do lists and you've been oh, yeah. there and I'm like, God, I really want to do that podcast, but it's just, yeah. it just, I think, I think the pandemic and just life in general and everything. Yeah, just, no, it, unhinged. It, it's but, well, here we are. there's, you know, I've got, uh, definitely I've got my mental to-do list, which, you know, if I wrote down, I would probably just go screaming mad. Um, <laughs> So uh, I've, I've got my to-do list and it's just priorities. And when yeah. you've got books to produce, which is, you know, far more important than a podcast, it's totally understandable that this becomes the lower priority. Well, to- this totally. Is, yeah, this involves wine, though. So it's a lot more fun. That's so, right. Anyway. So this being a speakeasy, this being yeah. a speakeasy, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking. And the funny thing is, I actually am more of a cocktail person than a wine person. I'm not much of a wine person, but I decided since I am lacking limes and vodka and ginger beer. I'm lacking all three mm. elements for my favorite drink, which is a Moscow mule. Um, I found a bottle of wine called clinker brick 1850. And I think it's Californian and it's quite nice. And I was going to use it for cooking because I had a few inches left and I thought it's still good. <laughs> I'm do this instead. And what kind of wine uh, is it? It's red. It says, let me put my glasses on. I think it's like a percentage of Cabernet, a percentage mm. of Zinfandel. And then I don't know. I can't read kind of a blend, I don't have my yeah. glasses, but it's, no, good. it's fine. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So, well, I'm, I am not having wine. I'm, I'm like you, I'm more of a cocktail person. I do like a good mm-hmm. Cabernet, but, um, mm-hmm. well, I like a good Cabernet, especially a good Cabernet, but I like other, other wines too. But uh, typically, I'm more of a cocktail fan, and uh, I, tonight I am having a Mexican firing squad. I, what uh, is that? <laughs> wow, that sounds I, packed with potency. Or I, I, or something. I learned I learned how to make my own grenadine a few months ago, and so I thought, well, now that I've made some, I've got to figure out some drinks that I can put it in. Uh, so I, oh the God. last time, last person I had in the uh, speakeasy was Leon Nixon. And I had a pink lady, which is a gin drink with uh, grenadine. And uh, this is a tequila drink with grenadine. It's basically... Oh my God, that sounds good. Yeah, it's it's basically a margarita, but with grenadine instead of triple sec. So it's t- Blanco okay. tequila, grenadine, and lime juice. And it's got the addition of quite a bit of aromatic bitters. So um, it's definitely different. It's got a really cool kind of dark 
pinkish reddish hue yep. and um and can it's can uh, I see it? oh can yeah yeah it? so uh, i forgot we're on camera <gasps> here oh so God, it's kind of hard to see in this drink. glass but yeah so uh i'm i'm a fan and i was going to i totally forgot tonight i actually have an atomizer i put some mezcal in it because i thought well for a firing squad got to get a little smoke and so i was just gonna i was just gonna put just a little bit of mezcal at the top so i could get some smoke but i forgot oh my God. so i cannot believe the name of that drink that yeah. is so cool mexican firing squad yeah wow. yeah There's i'm, a I'm a fan it's that. it's a good one I, i've got a couple more up my sleeve so is uh, the but... is the taste as good as the name because the name is really good it is it is i mean i i'm not a big tequila drinker but i like and part of that is because back in college days i was which we'll get to. You drink cheap, say. cheap tequila, and cheap tequila is not good. I know and, we're not uh, supposed to talk about our our college days, but I have to say, <laughs> tequila has been something I've been approaching in a very measured way since uh, I think it was my sophomore year. Do you remember uh, the guy, the professor who took people down to Cabo? This oh, is yeah. so long Bryce. ago. Bryce, Bryce, Bryce yeah. Harris, Bryce yeah. Harris. We went down there with like twenty of us. We drove from LA to yep. Cabo. So this is so long ago that uh, there were no hotels at all. We mm. camped on the beach. We had bonfires and I'll never forget it because the tiny little white potent scorpions were attracted to the fire. So you'd be like uh. sitting there at the, the bonfire, wiping the, you know, <laughs> wiping the scorpions off your shoulder. But of course, which led to a, there was a direct correlation between the scorpions and the tequila imbibing because you had to like do something to get the fear gone right and right. um they the guys would spearfish for dinner and we'd roast it over it was amazing I yeah can't even... i i have a lot of friends who who did that and we'll we'll get to in a minute why it is that okay. we both know this but um yes okay but but yeah i never did that i don't think that at that time in my life that would have been a good trip for me um well, but I... it was bad enough on when i did my comps um I got drunk that night on tequila and beer and tequila oh and beer oh. and, tequila <laughs> and a little tequila right. and a little more tequila and finally capped it off with, if I remember correctly, some slow gin. And that was the big mistake. The night before so, you had to present comps? No, no, no. The, the night oh. I, the night everybody in the math department had finally passed and uh, we all went out to dinner and, um, <laughs> I did not drink tequila, I think, for five or 10 years after that. So it uh, took, took it me a while to feel comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this is a good tequila drink. I would recommend it to anybody. But I would also recommend making your own grenadine because it's way better than the corn syrup water in the uh, in the grocery store. So anyway, Lisa, thanks so much for coming in. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. And cheers. And good evening. And happy Friday. Yes. And happy yes. Halloween. Happy Friday, cool. indeed. Mm. Um, all right, so uh, we'll get to college in a second, but uh, tell me first where you're from. So I grew up in Cold Spring Harbor, which is a little uh, town, a hamlet of Huntington, New York, which is about 35 miles east of New York City on Long Island on the North Shore. And anyone oh. from the Tri-State area knows how significant it is to specify where you're from on Long Island. <laughs> and it was like a very um, kind of a seafaring whaling town a town filled with victorian houses that had widows walks and lots of blonde girls who were taken to aspen at christmas time to ski <laughs> so being a little frizzy haired jewish girl there it was it had its moments <laughs> but uh yeah that's where i grew up and i have fond memories my life my childhood basically consisted of coming home from the beach with my brothers in a station wagon with faux wood on the side with oh. like the way way back 
You know, remember the way, way back, see oh, yeah. that face the opposite direction. Oh yeah. Coming we we from, had one of those. Yep. We all yep. did coming back from fire Island or the North shore and just licking our arms to see who was saltiest. <laughs> That's pretty much my childhood. That's and, great. Um, so, so you were there, you grew up there. And then I happen to know that you went to Occidental College because I that's sure where did. I went as well. Exactly. And so, um, I was, a li- this was my version of being a rebel. I was like, no, I'm not going to do the Northeast. I'm not yeah. going to do, I'm, I'm going to just get as far away as possible. And this is in the days of the New York Times Magazine on Sundays would come inside the very thick newspaper and anyone under 40 won't have any idea what I'm talking about, but this is in the days when people actually read a paper paper mm-hmm. and I would go to the magazine and flip to the back and in towards summer, they would have all the summer camp ads, but in the rest of the year, they would have college ads and there was oh. a spread about Occidental college. And I took oh. one look at the, the white stucco and the arches and the Spanish tiles. And I thought, this is about as far away from the Northeast, you know, bro-y kind of vibe that I would have had to put up with. And of course, you know, wasn't, I, and, and of course the rose colored glasses were immediately um, attached to my face. And I, I was that all the way. And it was at the time back in the eighties, it was kind of a smart move because for me, uh, it was, probably the best college I could have gotten into. And I think I had a little bit of an edge because I came from the East. I remember my freshman year, I sought out all the other New Yorkers and I think there were only like 11 of us or maybe, maybe a few more. Wow, no kidding. I mean, it was kind of a thing. It was kind of like, like geo, what is it called? Geolocation or geo, not geolocation, but uh, I'm thinking of geo arbitrage. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You're, you're, your geography could actually help you. I don't know if today mm. that applies because people. Are I don't know so either. There's yeah, things are so different when it comes to um, well, all school, including primary. Um, mm-hmm. Things are things are just so different now. I don't know how the college uh, makes the decisions that they make at this point. I know that the back in those days, the entire um, incoming class was four twenty five, and I know that in your uh, class. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think it was all classes. I think that in those days, the remember. incoming class was 425. And so mm-hmm. the entire population of the school with some people leaving was usually around 1500, which surprises yes. people. People yeah. people are like 1500, like in your department. I'm like, no, we had like 11 in my department. Exactly. I mean, if thing. I was going to go that far, I didn't want it to be too big. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, it's a lifetime ago and I would do things entirely different. I have I'm, I'm glad I went. I, like I was saying to you before we started recording, I just wish that I had given the West coast a little more of a chance because I, I, to be honest, I got homesick for seasons and there Uh, is something about the Northeast that I missed. And sure. uh, Because I chose journalism and then publishing, I was not in a position to readily and easily fly back and forth constantly. So I kind of, didn't make it to do to enough reunions and stuff, but, uh, yeah. and I chose to go for grad school. I chose New York city. I, I kind of fell well, in love with New York city after that, but I just, I, when I found out that you went to Oxy, I was so surprised. And so I looked you up on the, um, the online alumni directory and I thought eighties, what? So <laughs> we were actually there concurrently for I'm at sure least, we met. For at least just... one year and we may have, it's just one of those things. Um, I graduated a few years before you, but I knew a lot of people in 88 because that year I was in Stearns, the, oh the residence gosh. hall, 
And, and for some reason, I don't know if it was intentional or not. There were a lot of freshmen in Stearns that year. Hmm. And, uh, and so I ever lived in Stearns. So I I knew quite a few people from that year. Um, I remember Delmar, I don't know. So we can Mm -hmm. go down memory lane some other time. Nobody else has to listen to it, but, um, but it's just so funny, you know, yeah. small world. You end up finding out that you went to school with somebody and you didn't even know. I so, know, so especially such a small school. Yeah, I did. So, I, I, and it's funny because, yeah, I mean, I was a religious studies major at Oxy. Um, oh, no kidding with Dale, right? Uh, yes, he was my, my advisor. Well, he actually he was, uh, yeah. Ax- uh, do you remember Axel Stoyer? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah he was uh, also, those are the two men that I remember. Um, and I loved it. I was very much hardcore liberal arts, like AKA, you know, nothing practical about my approach. Mm, yeah. And, you know, it was like <laughs> philosophy, religious studies, comparative lit. And I'm glad, I'm glad. And this is what I'm encouraging my 17 year old son to do is like, I, you know, you really have not too many opportunities in your life to really embrace the liberal arts. And I have gone through all the, you know, various incarnations of what, one should do and blah, 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 or, you know, like, and I've come full circle. I went through this whole, like, well, that wasn't very practical and that was very expensive and blah, blah, blah. But now I'm like, now that I have a kid who's applying to college, I'm kind of mm. like liberal arts all the way. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I, 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 to- I totally get that. I, um, I am too. I'm, I'm gladder every year that I went there because at the time I, I did not have a good time in college. I, my uh, mental health was just not what it, needed to be and you know part of that's age part of that's me it's just it was just a difficult time and every year now when i or every five years when i go to reunions i'm i'm so glad that i went there i think it was one of the best things that my parents kind of pushed me towards um, for for their own reasons which weren't necessarily the best reasons but it's a but, fine school. Fine. School. Yeah, it is. It really was. I and and I just I think I got so much more out of it than I realized. I just wish now looking back. And I and I don't think this is unique to Oxy. I think that there are a lot of people who probably feel this way about those years is that I, I just wish I could have appreciated it more at the time. Well, you know what, Rich? I, I really believe I firmly believe that our culture and our country like my kid has a late birthday. He just turned 17 and he's a senior. I mean, honestly, I think some kind of compulsory service for American kids would be a fabulous idea. And I don't Mm. mean military necessarily, if you want to do that, great, but maybe some kind of, I know this has nothing to do with audiobooks, but some kind of service to your town or your, your state or another state, some kind of Vista program. I love the idea of a year or two before kids go off, because when I look back at Oxy, I think, First of all, I don't remember freshman year for yeah. <laughs> very good reasons. And it's yeah. just stupid. It's just like, personally, I think all I'm saying is you, you are not alone. I, I think a fairly large number of American high school kids are not quite in the right space mentally for college. Yeah. I can tell you, I absolutely was not. I ended up going to three different colleges and coming back to Oxy. Uh, I was deeply homesick. I went to Skidmore for a while. I did a summer session at Dartmouth. And after that, I was like, nope, going back, going back to Oxy. I can handle it now. And that's good. I, I never, that's I didn't good. miss a beat. I don't know how I managed to pull it off in four years, but I did. Yeah. So, and then I did uh, grad school. Like I waited five years. So. And, and so grad school was journalism. Yes, I went to Columbia for journalism. Um, did, did you have a specific goal in mind? I mean, were you going to be a, a traveling reporter? Or were you going to be doing something specific in journalism? 
or you know, was it just I just want to go into reporting and knowledge? I was a and... I was a feature writer, a features editor at the Occidental when I was in college, and I I was I am what you call a, an extroverted introvert. So my comfort zone is hanging alone, homebody, or not necessarily alone, but doing the homebody thing. But I'm also intensely curious about people and their stories and their lives. And my favorite thing, uh, my whole life, but especially in college and later is to just literally wander around meeting people and hearing their stories and learning who they are. And that what is happened, awesome. it's just kind of like what I love to do. And I, I fell in love with Manhattan. I moved to New York. Actually, I lived in Brooklyn, but I fell in love with New York City. And I, um, and I have to apologize here. I do get, I'm a little bit all over the place. So I, I no, no, it's focus. fine. It's fine. But um, what did I, what did I do? So what did you ask me? What did I do? Yeah. Oh when, I shouldn't have had so much it, wine already. No, it's fine. If, if you had a specific goal when you oh, were yeah. in journalism. I, I wanted to do feature stories and particularly profiles. I think that was the kernel of my love of memoir, which happens to be my favorite genre. Mm. Um, and I wanted to write stories about people. I particularly wanted to write profiles. I wanted to explore esoteric subjects. I think I was and I was a um, long form narrative nonfiction sort of um, that was the track that I was on. So I studied magazine journalism in those mm. days. That was a thing under uh, Suzanne Levine, who I think was the editor of Glamour magazine at the time. I wasn't really interested in working for the women's magazines and all of that. But I would say I was more along the lines of wanting to be someone like, although she hadn't made a name yet quite, uh, but, you know, like a Susan Orlean, like finding a really esoteric subject and digging in or a particular person and really learning who they were. And I wanted to write feature stories. And I did for a long time. I, I did a brief stint at the daily news and I literally had the best job. I would wander around Manhattan, meet people, just kind of observe, meet people, and then just find out who they were and what their stories were. And, um, wow, that must've been fascinating. It was fun, but you know, the problem was I reached a point I was stringer. I was a stringer for different publications and for different newspapers. And, um, I also dabbled in TV, uh, broadcast. So I worked, I mean, I was all over the place. Wow. Yeah. Exploring. It sounds like you're, you've been familiar with the gig economy for years. Oh yeah, I was, I was absolutely <laughs> I will. Well, in those days, it was the full time freelancer, which was just a uh, bullshit way of saying, sorry, excuse me. Yeah, no, it's of, fine. It's of fine. Saying like, we want your body and your soul full time, but we're not giving you benefits. And yeah. of course, we happily did that. Like my very, very first job, I, I almost hesitate to mention it, but right out of Oxy, I graduated in 88. So I went to work for Dukakis's campaign in Boston huh? in the headquarters. And the day that he showed up in the tank with the helmet on, I like was like, Okay, done. Over. <laughs> my, my work is done here. I'm going back to New York. And I had written a letter that to was Robert. A moment. I had written a letter to Robert McNeil during that campaign and said, "Hey, you know, uh, I had this like cocky attitude, like whatever I do, I'm going to start at the top and work my way down. Like just same same thing with grad school. It's like, well, I want to study journalism. Well, I'll just apply to Columbia. Like I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not even sure it's worth going to grad school because it's kind of ridiculous to go to grad school for something like that." So I did the same thing in, in work. And I was like, well, if I'm interested in journalism, I'm going to go to the best. So I started there and I ended up getting an internship and spent some time there. So um, 
after that, I ended up in, I worked for Bob Costas briefly. I worked at NBC, uh, just long enough to be able to go to the Olympics. I sort of dabbled in TV. And then I realized that it was too reliant upon, it was just too, it was just all sound bites. I needed, I was definitely more of a sort of narrative nonfiction, you know, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, like things that you lose yourself in stories that go so in depth, the kind of thing I wanted to be the writer who would enable people to curl up with their tea or their gin and tonic or whatever, and really dig into a subject. But it takes a lot of work, a lot of research and a lot of reporting. (laughs) And I don't know, I I kind of romantic, like all my classmates, I romanticized, you know, working in the White House press corps, going to be in foreign Uh, correspondent and all that. And I don't know, I guess I really went through this whole like, um, complete love affair with New York and I couldn't leave because I got to the point where they were like, people were like, yeah, you need to go to Des Moines for five years and then come back. And I was like, but I can't, I can't leave. I'm in love. So I stayed so that, and I, that's that, how I ended up in publishing. That kind of reminds me of, of when I looked into radio, everybody was like, you know, oh yeah, radio is great, but I mean, you got to put your dues in. So yeah. you need to take right. whatever job there is. And if that ends up being a town of 5,000 people in Montana, then that's where you go. Exactly. And I'm like, and I wasn't, ah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that's, I'm so glad you said that because I felt a little guilty that I wouldn't do it, but I was like, I'm not sure that my love of like, I wanted to do journalism, but there were other things that I was also willing sure. and interested in doing, obviously, because I, I didn't end up doing that. Um, And I wasn't willing to do that. So so you went into publishing. Well, what happened was as I was wandering around the city, sort of stringing for the daily news and being paid, I don't know, $50 a week or something. I (laughs) saw an actual ad in the, in the New York times, like literally in the classifieds that said something like, are you interested in theater and journalism and writing and radio and audio. And I was like, wait a minute, this is somehow, whatever this is, it's cobbling together everything I've ever been interested in. And this is around the same time that David Isay started StoryCorps. Maybe it was a few years before then, but like that guy was like a dream, like that whole StoryCorps, you know what that is, right? I, I don't. StoryCorps is, a, maybe it's a little New York centric, but David Isay started a thing where people, it's like a traveling I think it literally started in an Airstream trailer, but it started in, in Grand Central and anyone could come off the street. He is he was much like he had the same philosophy I did in that he was a believer that everyone has a story to tell. Everyone's mm. life is interesting. And I'm an absolute believer in that, which is why I yeah. love memoir, because it's the way that you tell the story. It's not the content necessarily. It's like you don't have to be, you know, Tobias and Jeffrey Wolf and have grown up with a con man and crossed the country. You don't have to have an exotic life to have a great memoir. You just have to take whatever your life was and really know how to spin a tale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know why I got off on David, why I just went out down that. This happens to me a lot, Rich. I'm sorry. I'm a little. No, bit no, that's fine. What, what you're making me but, think of, though, about the whole narrative nonfiction, though, is I, I listen to the Moth podcast. And I love um, it. I love it. I, I love it. There are, there are so many great stories and, you know, some it's just kind of funny and that's fine. And and some you're going along and it's like, oh my God, I didn't expect that to happen. And I, I and, and it's so cool knowing this is a real thing. This happened to this person. Now I, I understand know. they're telling a story. And so yeah. even though, you know, it's supposed to be real and everything, I'm sure that things get a little bit amplified in certain places. Oh, for sure. And ways. that's okay. But it I is okay. 
It is okay because that's yes. that's probably exactly what they're remembering, even it's part if of the storytelling it's a process. It is. Yeah. I think that when you are a storyteller, I think especially with memoir, I, I I really believe that if you keep things like the fact checking, if it's accurate, you know how you describe something can be. Um, it's how you spin it, and it, as long as you're keeping the facts straight. Mm-hmm. There is a lati- there is some latitude there, but yeah. I, basically, I made a transition somewhere along the way from being quite snobbish. Uh, I I love rare books. I collect books. I have a library. I'm into you know I'm a huge ASMR person with like the smell and the sound of the pages and the turning and like the idea of books themselves. Like I really should have been a librarian basically, right. um, because that would be like the best job for me because I love books. <laughs> I love quiet. I love people who are you know I love that sort of now in my life, especially, but I was also hyper-social at moments. And um, anyway, I made this transition somewhere along the way from being like kind of a little bit of a snob about print and reading to, uh, I think it was my discovery of StoryCorps and the moth and, you know, selected shorts. And um, I also was involved with Chicago City Limits as an improv uh, person for a while. I studied some theater and the idea of taking you know, taking a story and making it physical. Like it's one thing to get into the headspace. It's a wonderful thing as a reader to curl up in your chair with your cat or your dog or your wine or your tea by the fire and read your book and, and get inside that intimate space with the author as a reader that brings so much joy, but there's a whole new level of physicality of storytelling when you get, you know, this kind of these, these, these organizations that I just mentioned, it's, it's like, adding a different muscles to the the storytelling. And also it brings you into the realm of the entire history of storytelling, oral storytelling. You're kind of like, wow, well, this is how it all started with humans around a fire, you know, millions of years ago, whatever. Yeah. Well, not millions, but a long time ago. And sure, yeah. um, I really sort of fell in love with oral storytelling and the spoken word. And anyway, then somehow I saw this ad in the Times and I ended up at Bantam Doubleday Dell, which was owned by Bertelsmann. And I was there just very briefly for like three years. And there were just three producers. This was so long ago, it was in 95. And this was in the days of, you know, quote unquote, books on tape. And everybody would ask you, oh, that's for the visually impaired, right? And, and indeed it was, but it, it was clearly, I mean, that's part of it, but there was so much more. So, and- that, so that first job in publishing then, yeah, was that was in, was in audiobooks. It was, and and yeah. and, and, a, and I didn't even know what an audiobook was. But right. I I went, I sent my resume. I actually didn't know what the job was. And Jenny Frost, who ran the division then for uh, Bertelsmann, called me in, and we hit it off. And I ended up as one of three producers. And um, you know, it was like early days. The industry was probably a. I think I I remember some figure like four hundred thousand. No, it couldn't be. No, it must have been 400 million. It was it was going places, but it wasn't in the billions. It wasn't where it is now. Sure. And, yeah. And, you and, know, that and we was, did like 35 titles a year. That was. It. Yeah. No, nobody was doing that much. And I mean, audiobooks have been around, I think, since the 40s or 50s. But it was right. a very, very slow ramp up until about I think it was 2000, 2010 when it started to go up. And then 2010, it just exploded. Um, right. This was so, early enough that. So, well, this we would the, do, so this was in the 90s? It was in 95. So okay. from 95 to like, yeah, I started in 95. And there were some diehard 
studios and editors who were still using reel to reel. Everything was mm. analog. I mean, well, we were using DATS. I don't know. I guess technically that's digital. But this was after a session. What you would do is you would spend the week recording. It was all very strict. You know, it was like eight hours, which I'd never do to people now. I think that's brutal. I think that's yeah. it, but to be honest, I think it could be me. I can't direct for more than five hours, but we would go and we would record in places that were super posh. Like, you know, I recorded at Carnegie hall a lot and oh, like, you wow. know, like Luciano Pavarotti would walk out and I would have like, you know, <laughs> Ed, Edward Norton walking in. It was amazing. That's and, um, cool. and of course the budgets were insanely enormous uh, because nobody really understood yet. Uh, you know, cause it, it was expensive and right. everything was abridged. Everything was three hours or six hours on cassette. And those numbers, those, those lengths were fully determined by price points and packaging. Mm. And, um, you know, I remember I, as an abridger, what I did was I'd hide, you know, everything had to be abridged and I will be universally loathed for saying this, especially among editorial people. But I personally think, I know that abridging has, you know, had, there was a little bit of a stigma against it, but in many cases with manuscripts can be bloated. And in many cases, it actually, it actually really helped Probably tighten helped, things yeah. up. I mean, you could cut the word very out of, you know, a book and, and, and <laughs> lose 10,000 words right there. And yeah. I know this because I had recently discovered global deletions. This is so long ago, that I was still familiarizing <laughs> myself with like Microsoft word. And I remember globally deleting very, just to see what would happen. And then I had a, an entire manuscript filled with words like e thing and E1, because I accidentally cut out every. all the, every V-E-R-Y. So, but That's anyway, <laughs> so I would hire people to, you know, and I knew that in those days, it was like 50, 57,500 words was a six hour audiobook. So you would uh. immediately know what you had to abridge. And I was often unhappy with the abridgement. So I would start abridging or fixing them. And by the time I left, I was so... Um, I enjoyed the hands-on aspect of audiobook production. And in those days, in-house was very much, at least at Bantam Doubleday Dell, it was very much a um, a project manager job, which it kind of can be today, depending where you are. But you mean you just hired in terms of having having a lot of different hats to to wear during the process. Well, the fun stuff, the really creative stuff was done by outsiders, like uh, clearly the narration, but even the abridging, the directing, mm. the the actual producing everything that happened and you, you know, in-house, you were just kind of in charge of supervising everything. And in, at that time, I kind of wanted to direct. I wanted to mm. be more hands-on. I wanted to read and abridge and you had to leave to do that. So eventually I'll never forgive myself. I don't know if this is either very good timing or bad and I'll never know, but I <laughs> left about, I chose to leave about six months before Random House uh, but before the merger. So oh. who knows what could have happened? This was so long ago that Dan Zitt was the intern for the division. <laughs> so, oh, no kidding. Yeah, it was a while ago. So um, anyway, but it was fun. And um, I did. And then I was able to do all of those things. And I kind of, I really got into a bridging. I, I just very much loved the muscles that it used. Like it felt like the same sort of intellectual satisfaction as doing the New York Times crossword or you know, today yeah. I like to do the B, but it was like, how do I lose, you know, 35% of this manuscript, but not have the author notice. So I would do mm. like, okay, this is like, I'm going to nip and tuck and I'm going to like, like take each sentence and sort of like 
suture it, like nip a little bit here and there instead mm -hmm. of amputations. And I found that to be incredibly enjoyable. Um, That's so funny. John, uh, John McElroy was also an abridger. Oh yeah. And, yep. uh, and, and I, he I said, hired him mm -hmm. and, and, and he said that he, you learn and it gets actually pretty easy it's to a be formula. exactly to be able to go through and know exactly what you can and can't get rid of for it to work. What I, the most interesting thing about abridging, and then we'll move on is that the, the better written a book, this is so bizarre, the tighter the book, in other words, the better edited the easier it was because oh, I believe that because many books, this was sort of like, you know, some books were so beautifully edited and so tightly written and it, what it, it was almost like it forced you to make tough decisions, but the material was there in front of you and you had to make a tough decision. And it was like, okay, this sucks. This is not going to make the author happy, but I have to do it. You, it's like, you have to commit to it. The right. harder books were the ones where these overwritten fluff, it was like peeling an onion. It was like, where there's no there there. What is the premise? What yeah. is the center of this book? Like, what am I doing? And I would, uh, it was so hard. And the, the hardest abridging job I ever had to do, I'll never forget it. It was, oh my gosh, I hope it's okay to talk about this. I had to abridge Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series. Oh, wow. Uh, those were so long and I had to cut. I am not exaggerating. I had to get those down to six hours. Well, let me tell you something. On a bridge, those are probably 30 hours or something. Wow. I was cutting 70, 80%. I don't know what I was doing. And I, all That's I know is huge. that I was working on, I think it was Outlander. It might've been Dragonfly and Amber. It was one of those. And she was, you know, she was, she's amazing. And she was involved and I'll never forget it because I stole away to Saratoga Springs for the weekend to bang this out. I was like, I'm going to find a nice hotel. I'm going to go up there. I'm just going to do this. Cause it was a monster job. And of course I'm a, you know, expert procrastinator and mm -hmm. it was the weekend before nine 11. And oh, I had already wow. stayed up for three nights. I had basically pulled, I hadn't done like a college all nighter since Oxy yeah. and I stayed up and I was abridging this thing. And I was, I remember it was very difficult because it was wonderful and I didn't want to cut anything. Right. I had to cut more. It was the most severe abridgment I'd ever done. And I had no sleep. And then I got back to New York and then nine 11 happened. And then of course I didn't sleep for like 10 days. So I had already, I was starting in a deficit and I ended up down at the pile and volunteering and being like really involved in it. I went crazy, wow. but anyway, I'll never forget it because of the timing of it, but also because it was just so crazy. Anyway, I, I personally really loved it. And sometimes I work on manuscripts and I'm like, wow, we really should bring a bridging. Back. <laughs> but um, that's I, just my I, own. I'm pretty sure that John said something along the same lines about the fact that you know, it's it's not really done at this point, or it's done very, very infrequently. It doesn't need to be because it's so cheap. Right, right. But but he was saying, I, if I remember correctly, um, I'd have to go back and listen. But it seems to me that I got the same sense from him that mm -hmm. it was, um, you know, there there are plenty of places where that could still be done if people would choose to do it, and it would yes. really be, it would really help some of the people who would be wanting to listen to it without wanting to spend the entire 15 or 20. Well, I, I absolutely or... think that's the case. And I, I think especially today with our attention spans the way that they are. And yeah. in general, <laughs> I mean, look, this is going to be an unpopular view, but I do believe that just because you have the technology and something is 
you are able to do. It doesn't mean you necessarily shouldn't think about what the best approach is. Sure. And I think because digital downloads are so affordable, the instinct of the industry was like, well, let's just put the whole book then and let's make a 15 hour audiobook and we'll just figure out a price point that works and blah, 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 blah. I'm not, a, I'm not sure that's always the best plan. Right. Um, in fact, I know it isn't, but no one, you know, and I'm sure things will come full circle. You know, it's like, I have long okay. enough perspective on this industry that now I think a whole new incarnation of like, who knows what'll happen. Anyway, yeah, I, was, I was actually just talking to somebody else about that, about the fact that, you know, audiobooks are still huge. What is it? Eight or 10 years now of double digit growth. And okay, wow, that's fantastic. I mean, I'm monster. a narrator. That's great. But right. nothing lasts forever. So what's the next big thing? Well, that's the know. big dirty word. We will get to it. But yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but, but the interesting so, thing, the, the fun thing that and you know, I work with people who are kind of, you know, who are a lot younger than I am. And I have these war stories. And I, I talk about how, you know, we would create two sets of dads. First of all, you would only you would only um, bounce all the files and everything on the last day of a session. You mm. would create two identical masters. So, you know, I'd have a set of masters on safeties, two scripts, and you would FedEx them in separate packages to the same recipient who was the post house. And because you were so afraid that it would get right. lost because there was no internet. I mean, there was internet, but it was so early that you couldn't do yeah. things like that. I mean, and yeah, back back in the 90s. Yeah, that's... I know. And I would like literally it was so these kind of funny little traditions that seem so quaint now. Like, for example, I would wear sneakers on the last day of a session because I had to run to FedEx to make the deadline wow. with these massive 500 page manuscripts and two packages of them. And I'd be carrying like, you know, 14 pounds of paper to <laughs> FedEx and it's just so different. And, you know, yeah. the one thing I will say I do miss is this bizarre uh, budgets, like the bizarrely high budgets, mm. like even by today's standards, they would be unfreaking believably generous. And I can't, I look back and I'm like, how on earth were we getting that kind of money in the 90s? I was being given 20 to $25,000 a book. I was hiring musicians to score audiobooks. I once tracked Doogie McLean down outside of, down in the Outer Hebrides with his family because I had done a book about golf in Scotland and I wanted to score the entire book. It was a memoir about a guy who had played I can't remember his name, but it was a lovely book. And it was, I should, it's too bad. I feel bad that I don't know it, but That's I can't funny. remember. But he was, he wrote an entire book about playing golf with his dad on his dad's, you know, at the end of his dad's life in Scotland. And I, I mean, I, it's crazy what we would spend. Crazy. So, yeah, and, I, I would have the same question. It's, it's, it's like, okay, well, I understand some books, you know, Stephen King, uh, there are going to be enough people who are going to be buying it where that's huge, but Back in those days, they didn't. I know. Yeah, it's hard to imagine understand. that there was enough of a market to. Um, I don't think there was. That happen. I don't really understand. I this, you know, my expertise stops at the I make the widgets. I don't know what happens after that. Right, I often right. get. I do side gigs and I work with other people and other companies, uh, you know, and very on the weekends and stuff. And when I'm not working with Hachette, and I often get questions about you know, like distribution and price points and all this. And I'm like, honestly, I just have no idea. Not just, your end I of can't, business. Yeah. No, nah, that's not my jam. Well, so but, when did you, when did you start with Hachette then? So what happened was, so I left, what happened? I was in a relationship with somebody in the, in those days and he wanted, he was a, at one of these big uh, corporate 
white chip blue shoe, whatever those law firms where they would make you <laughs> bill like 2000 hours a year and you would work like 90 hour weeks. And he Got was it. having a nervous breakdown. So he was like, I need to quit. And I was like, and he's like, I need to quit and leave the city. And so we both quit because I desperately wanted to be an independent contractor so I could do all the creative stuff. And uh, truthfully, like I said, the money was better out, outside. So I did that for like 20 years. And then I started Prose Garden Productions, my little side gig thing, and just kind of very occasional original audiobooks, authors, you know, indie authors would come to me or whatever. And I, I, um, I did that for a while. And then I started getting um, so much, so many inquiries from various sources about spoken word projects and original stuff. And this is already in 2015. I was getting a lot of inquiries about originals, like people writing their own stuff and mm -hmm. um, wanting to put it on audio. So I had been, I had stayed in touch with Michelle McGonigal mm -hmm. and some other people because during my freelancing years, I was often uh, working at Talking Books in Manhattan, um, and we connected there. I think Brilliance, I worked a lot with Brilliance in those days. I was just kind of floating around. I was abridging and directing and producing. And at some point, I connected with Michelle, and I talked to her about all of this original stuff. And then I wrote, I said, wouldn't it be cool if... I could be the conduit for, this is before it was a thing. It was kind of at the, the very beginning of this because it was like 2014, 2015. And maybe it was even a little bit earlier. Um, and um, I said, you know, can I be the conduit? Can I, can I find the gems in the rough for you? Can I, can I go through slush piles and find things that should be on audio and be... And, you know, I basically had all these cool ideas and cool projects, but I wanted someone else to pay for them. Mm -hmm. So I, I connected with her and they weren't ready for that yet, but they ended up asking me. They basically said, yes, but can you be a staff producer and we'll get to that. And I was like, uh, single mom, low income. Sure. Why not? And I did yeah. it. And at the time I had just moved to the Hudson Valley. And um, I remember it was crazy because I was like, oh, my God, I'm. 80 miles away from Manhattan, I cert I definitely do not want to commute. So I said, can I, if I build a studio that meets the same specs as like, you know, Penguin Random House or you guys, like really a professional studio up here, could I not commit? Could I not commute? Especially because there are authors and actors all over the Hudson Valley. The same people that sure. are in New York have weekend houses up here. So I was like, let me try this. And they went for it and they were like, yeah, sure. Why not? So this is like, you know, years before the pandemic. I, I was going to say, a, so you you were used to that already then. Yeah, I was permanent remote. I would go in maybe once every six weeks or so. And I'm wow. you know, now I'm going to be, we, we just are reopening our building, believe it or not, now, like next week, November 2nd, I believe we're opening up and I will be going down once a month or so. So I started doing that. And um, I really, to be honest, there's so many audiobooks that each of us has to handle that I haven't really had time to do <laughs> much original stuff for Hachette. I do right. a, a, very occasional weekend work for other companies and other individuals. But obviously, we have maybe six and a half producers at Hachette. I say half because they're associate producers who do other things. But right. we have 
I think we produce maybe 800-ish audiobooks a year, and we have not that many producers, so it's a lot. Uh, yeah. And it's a lot yeah, less definitely. than it used to be. We have more producers than we had when I started. So there's just no time. And it's great. I love it. I actually really love it. I am not a corporate minded person. I loved freelancing, but as we all know, the feast or famine thing can be tiring. And it as is. a single mom, it was hard. Even when, um, even when it's going well, there's always this thing in the back of your head, you know, well, but mm -hmm. what if, uh, you know, something yeah. slows down for some reason. And I, that's always in the front of my brain lately for multiple reasons. Um, so yeah. it, it can definitely be difficult. Right. But Hachette, I have to say, like, I honestly am amazed that I'm I'm so pleased that I am here um, almost seven years. Well, six and a half years. That's the longest I've ever been at any company because I am a little bit of a rebel and I was not a corporate minded person. But I got to say, if you're going to be a, a big, successful company, they're doing something right. I really and I'm. this is not me just taking this opportunity to brown nose my company. I really have to say I have been. They're a lovely company. Um, maybe it's because they're European owned. I don't know what it is. They, they're generous, they're warm, they're kind, and they take care, they, they do care about work-life balance. I have never had that experience. Again, I was a freelancer for 20 years. Um, I just think generally life wasn't like that in the work world all those years ago. And it's kind of funny because now there's all these debates like how, you know, like these hybrid situations, like the younger, my younger colleagues are like, they only have, you know, they're only being asked to go back two days a week, like one fixed day and one floating day. And everyone's like, mm -hmm. all the millennials are like, no, I don't want to go. And I'm like, oh my God, you have no idea how you lucky you are. I can yeah, be on I, a train for like 20 years. You know? Yeah. This whole thing. I, I think back to when I started working straight out of Oxy, I went to work for Bank of America. I was oh, wow. in, in branches for a couple of years. And then I was at the corporate office and they figured out I was I was a tech head, and so I ended up getting into the programming end. But I just look back at that, and I think even back then, the idea of always working at home was just laughable. Oh, if, if I can't I, even. I, I know. Yeah, if it's I had insane. brought if I had brought that up, they would have just said, "No, of course not. What are you talking like, about? Exactly. What are you smoking? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, like okay, <laughs> sure, why not? I know, and it's yeah. so crazy, and it really. It, it was a blessing. I mean, I will say that it, the maybe the reason I am still here is because I have been permanent remote. I mean, I don't know. I think commuting can really, it can really drain you, um, oh, especially yeah. in the tri-state, in the you know, big metropolitan areas. But um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in LA and the traffic there now, when I go back to LA, I just think, holy cow, I've, I've got a friend who commutes at least an hour each way. Maybe, maybe longer. No, that's fine. Okay. So, so so, so anyway, yeah. so you so you've been in Hachette for um for a while. Six and a half, seven years. And I and I really yeah, I mean I, I I've been there. I I really do love the company. I think they're a special place. Um, you know, no place is perfect, but um I I uh I'm very happy and they are well, so how do you they've been very there? kind to me because That's... there's been some stuff happening and they just in my personal life and they've accommodated me and and they're just no, it's... I'm so sorry. My dog probably saw a leaf or a squirrel. Ah, uh, yes. It's all yes. right. Uh, I mean, if you understand. Can... So anyway, yes. So I'm at Hashtag. I'm very happy there. Um, so, I so enjoy how, it. How do you split your time? What all do you do? Um, okay. I know, so, that you, I know that you wear several hats there. What? How do you spend your time? Uh, I spend a lot of time on emails. 
Mm. I spend a lot of time taking emails from, um, I spend a lot of time feeling guilty that I don't have time to respond to every single perspective narrator who, yeah. and I, I really, and when I first started, I really tried and I really wanted to, and I never understood that. Like, how can you let's, how can you not answer everyone? And I can't even believe it, but I get it now. It's, and I, I really prided myself on answering. And now I, I'm so glad that we're talking because whoever's listening to this people between the insane number of emails I get, I probably get, no joke, 50 to 80 emails a day. And a good percentage of those are from uh, people who want to narrate. And right. I have to say, I am blown away by the talent pool. Like I, I uh, the reason I want to listen to them is because honestly, a, a, quite a lot of them are amazing. And I want to know them. I want to hear them. It's just, and I, and I just want to say this, I have told a few people that I get up early and I open my email like everyone else on the planet. And if somebody hits me in the morning, that is the best thing you can do. Uh, As I'm having my coffee, I will listen to your reel, you know, but if it comes to me at two o'clock, it's going to get blue flagged and it's going to rise up. And then I'm going to like work my way down the email visually. And then it's going to get lost in the shuffle. And it's so sad, but um, what I'm trying to get in the habit of doing is taking those emails and putting them in a folder that says perspective narrators. And then on the weekends, I just listen to them and you never know. I mean, I have found some amazing people that way. I'm, I want, I want to say, cause I know mo- m- many of your listeners are, are narrators or people who would like to narrate. I really, really, really encourage people who want to do this to try because, and, and to, you know, take classes and, and, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here, but I am absolutely in a believer in training new people and finding new voices. Um, There is just incredible talent out there. I'm one of the things I'm really proud of is that I've sort of given some people that are, you know, household names now, like their first audiobook, And like, you know, I I really love it. I mean, one young woman, I'm not going to name names because I uh, just feel a little weird about that. Sure. But there was somebody, yeah, no. she's like a top, she's constantly working. She's, she, I found her because I did an open casting call and her job was to read books at a retirement facility, like a, like a retirement home. And mm. she just read books aloud and she had a little bit of theater background and she was, I just had this, what the hell, let's just do an open audition for this Patterson book. And her audition was so good. And I hired her and she is insanely busy now. And she had to actually, I feel bad. She actually had to quit that job at the old folks home. (laughs) Like I found people that way and I love it. And I love doing classes and I love, I don't do it often because I'm just too busy, but my studio here in New Paltz, I I'd like to get more in the habit. I've done a few classes, uh, you know, nothing like these. I would never do like a pay to play kind of thing. Like it's just more like, Hey, let's have 10 or 15 people this weekend and let's just chill for three hours. And each of you come with, you know, a minute and a half of your favorite fiction and a minute and a half of your favorite nonfiction. And I actually feel like it's a barter situation. Like you come to me, I'll give you a chance and I'm going to get a new pool of narrators out of this. And that's how I've been doing it. I think I tend to be a little bit, a little too anti-capitalist. Like I could probably charge a little (laughs) bit and I will start to do that, but I've done things like that and uh, it's really fun. And I found some amazing people and uh, I just, 
love doing that. Yeah, um, I'm sure that it's really rewarding to, and and I'm sure that a lot of coaches could say this too about, you know, well, I remember when that person came to me and they had some, I could see something, but it wasn't quite there. And I worked with them for a year or whatever it was. And now look at what they're doing. They're doing all kinds of stuff. It's got to feel good. So it does. Yeah, totally, it, it totally really understand. does. And yeah, it, it does feel good. And I, I also feel like it makes up for something that I think I'm semi responsible for, but not sure. I'm very cloudy because it was so long ago, but I will just tell a quick anecdote that Sometimes I feel like I am partly responsible for the trend of getting celebrities to do narr- to do audiobooks mm. because way back in the 90s I had a book it wasn't a book it was actually an original by Tom Wolfe it was called Ambush at Fort Bragg and what it was it was a novella that was going to be published in Rolling Stone and the big thing was this was an uh, this was an original. They they Jenny Frost decided to turn this into a um, an original audiobook. And back in 1995, that was like like a concept that wasn't being discussed. Right. Everything, every audiobook was absolutely married to every hardcover. It was mm-hmm. you audio was absolutely the redheaded stepchild of editorial in every <laughs> publishing house, and they were kind of like. You know, you were like, well, they were, the editorial's attitude was like, who are these people? They're, what is that, an app? Like, how are they? Are they? They're our competition. And, you know, it's right. evolved many times since then. But anyway, long story short, I, re, I had seen Edward Norton in a movie. I think it was the one that he was nom. It was like his first movie and he was nominated for an Oscar. And he did a, a whole variety of Southern accents in this film. And this particular novella was set in Fort Bragg. North, uh, North Carolina. Is that North Carolina? Yeah. I think so. And it required accents from everything from the Outer Banks to Asheville and Fort Bragg and all of these different accents. And I thought, wow, that actor, that guy, Edward Norton, he'd be so amazing. And everyone's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And I was like, well, it can't hurt to try. So sure. I went to his agent and I'll never forget it because it was like such a tiny piddling amount of money. Uh, for the narrator, because believe it or not, back then those big budgets, most of it went to the post houses and the producers. It oh didn't yeah, I believe go it. To the narrators. Yeah. And he and he ended up saying yes, and he did it. And I remember that it was such a small amount of money that he was like, "Oh, I'll just donate this to like a dyslexia organization or something." And oh, cool. after that, I got cocky and I was like, "Oh, what about this movie star and that movie star?" And anyway, I don't think I know that famous people were narrating audiobooks before then, but I always felt. And now, all these years later, I have so many friends who are narrators who are. Not not celebrities and they're so enormously talented and I always felt a little bit badly because there is a little bit there was a little bit of a trend of let's just get this person because they're famous and that we have done studies ad nauseum and it does not sell it does not sell audiobooks I think if the author is a celebrity and it's a memoir yes they should read their own book but I don't I think it's been proved that you do not need a movie star to read an audiobook so well, I always so have I, a little guilt about that. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that that's true that it, that you don't need that. I will also say that um, some actors who are out there who are stars are stars for good reason because they're incredible performers, and right. they can also carry that through to sitting in front of a microphone. I've heard some amazing performances. Absolutely. I I still remember just being blown away. Different genre, but I still remember being blown away by John Goodman in Monsters Inc. and oh, just thinking, yeah. 
just thinking that was some of the best acting I have ever not seen. It was, um, he was, I, I just was blown away by that. And so, you know, all of us narrators who aren't movie stars, sure, we're a little bit unhappy about the fact that the movie stars seem to get some work that somebody else could do just as well. So it might be, but the the fact is that even if it doesn't, um, it it's well, at least at least for myself, I can say that at least a little of that is a little sour grapes because some of those actors are really phenomenal. some of them, yeah, yes. But I will also say that just because you're you know you know as you well know as a narrator, narrating an audiobook does not involve running off to your Airstream trailer and having your assistant spray <laughs> Evian on you every 10 minutes, you know? No, it's, and, it's and, a very different experience, yeah. And one thing I learned is that, you know, stage-trained folks are clearly, they have the stamina, they have the diction, they have it. And I have worked with some pretty big names and it's just not, it just didn't work. Um, it yeah. depends. Um, but anyway, I always sure. had a little bit of like weird guilt about that. But the cool thing is, I mean, we literally, this is so obnoxious and I even thought it was obnoxious at the time. We literally had, and I probably shouldn't even disclose this, but like we, for years they had, it's probably not a secret, but they had like quote celebrity rates and quote non-celebrity rates Mm, for, mm -hmm. for, for, you know, narration fees. And I remember, I'm not going to say who, but there was somebody who was transitioning between being a solid working stage actor in New York. And she had gotten into a few movies. And then I remember going to my, to somebody, my, maybe my boss, maybe maybe an agent, I don't know, and being trying to figure out like, well, what what rate should she be? And that's when I realized how absurd it all was. And anyway, I've made the journey, you know, I am, I actually have been doing this long enough that, and I, I, I have gotten so many VIP projects and I, I personally would, I much prefer working with people that strictly, this is what they do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they may not be a household name, but I know who they are and they're amazing. And yeah. That those are my those are my people. Like, there are a lot of people listening who are really happy to hear that. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I won't. I won't. Sometimes we get these, and and the truth is, the 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 bad news is the budgets are are getting even more shaved down. Um, but the good news is that by definition forecloses the possibility of working with, you know, quote unquote celebrities. And unfortunately, it's getting a little uncomfortable. I I think it's getting a little too carried away, but the point is that I think that audiobooks are popular enough and the industry is so is so um in full bloom now mm-hmm. that the people who love audiobooks and who listen to them, the rabid fan base out there, they this is they get it. They grok it completely. They know mm-hmm. it's about the right narrator for the book the person who really best honors and represents the writer's voice and the story itself and the characters, they understand that not every book should be quote unquote performed. Some should be more like a bookstore type of reading. Some should be, you know, there's so much to talk about with Mm -hmm. how to narrate and how it should be done. And I, I'm absolutely certain that it's not about name recognition at all. And, And we know that that doesn't sell. Uh, that does not mean anything um, yeah. in terms of, I mean, I'm not on that side, but I know that that's not a thing anymore. Like even our, even our weekly meetings, it, it's not like nobody talks about, you know, we don't even have the budget and we don't really talk about those people anymore and it's okay. Yeah. And that's good. And good I'm to hear. Because you know what? It's a pain in the butt. 
to deal with like eight <laughs> layers and you never even talk right. to them directly until they're there in the studio. And meanwhile, like you've had to go through eight layers of assistance and it's ridiculous, yeah. but not, not, not to say, I mean, there's some lovely people out there who happen to be well-known, but anyway, all right. Sure. I talk about celebrities. Yeah, so. no, I'm, I'm sure that it, it varies widely depending on who it is that's, that's involved. So, um, so you do, I know that you started out talking about your love of narrative nonfiction, and I know that Hachette does nonfiction and that you do I do a lot of it. So they they acquired me at the same time that they, that sounds so arrogant, acquired me. I was hired at the same time they acquired Perseus books. And uh, I think it was a coincidence that I had had the journalism background, but Perseus was widely was almost entirely in nonfiction, narrative nonfiction. And for a long mm. time here, I was kind of the go-to person for these, you know, long books and uh, that are a lot of reportage and, you know, books about politics or international relations or whatever. And it was kind of cool, but <laughs> honestly, Rich, I was just like, can I just have some smut once in a while? You know, like I got to the <laughs> point where I was like, Where's all we all feel stuff? that way every once in a while. Exactly. Lisa. And I just right. have a little smut once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I just need to hear someone in the booth, like having a, you know, fake orgasm before noon <laughs> once in a while. So, yeah. So I did a lot of that and I still do. Um, and of course I love it, but honestly, I have, I think my love of theater and my love of, 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 of actors and these, all of these wonderful people who are so well-trained many moons ago at Occidental. In fact, I was involved in theater a little bit. And I, I think if I hadn't had such severe stage fright, I would have gotten more involved, but I very quickly discovered that I was more interested in the, the actual scripts and the writing and the behind the scenes stuff. Um, So I, this is a group of people who are listening now that I really, really admire people who have this training and people who uh, love language and who understand Mm. the importance of the nuance of, of, of using, of, of verbalizing a comma in the right way, or just the right pacing or, you know, cadence or tone, like all that really subtle stuff that makes the difference between somebody just decoding language and on sort of unfurling a story and going into autopilot. Like I always talk about when, when I am working with a new narrator, I'll talk about the dangers of going into autopilot and I'll often liken it to be careful about getting on the throughway or the highway or the freeway out there and just going into autopilot. And then suddenly you've gone past 18 exits, 18 chapters. You don't know how you've gotten there. That means you're not listening to what you're reading and you're, and the listeners will know, they will know. I know as your director, you're not paying attention. And this, believe it or not, happens with authors of their, with their own books, because let's face it, you know, as well as anyone, it's like, decoding language over five hours is exhausting. And at some point it just, you, it, it, the risk of going into autopilot is, is pretty strong. Um, so when you're with somebody who is fully engaged and really listening to their own, to their own performance or their own, their own narration, but is, has taken the time to really prep the, the manuscript and really thought about it and really thought about what the author has really um, connected with the author's voice, uh, 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 you know, that you can feel it, you can tell, and it is such a joy to behold. Yeah, um, That's what I live for. I'm, I'm glad you said nuance. That's actually something that I'm, uh, I've, I've known for a while that that is, that detecting the nuances that, that show up in a script um, 
and they're everywhere that you can change something just a little bit. And all of a sudden there's more there. Um, You could change it a different way and there would be more there. It'd be different though. Which one's right? Uh, Who knows? The director, the listener, you know, but I mean, there is no, I don't think there is any right. Right. But, but there are so many opportunities and what I'm working on right now is being able to recognize those more quickly because I know that they're there in my head, but then actually feeling them as you're reading through the words, sometimes it gets a little hard to remember that. So anyway, that's that's my bugaboo. But I'm, yeah. I like the fact that you said nuance, because I think that that's what, you know, good versus great a lot of times comes down to is right. the, the subtle things. It's not the big things. It's the small things. And those small things add up. Yes. And I actually think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a while ago is that I think checking your ego. This is why maybe celebrities aren't always the best narrators. It isn't for me. And I'm not going to speak for other companies, other, I'm not even going to speak for my own colleagues at Hachette. For me as an audiobook producer, I appreciate not a performance. I appreciate, mm. I mean, sometimes it's warranted, you know, if you have a big multicast book and it's kind of like the Marvel, the equivalent of a Marvel movie, but you know, whatever, right. that's different. But if we're talking about either a memoir or narrative nonfiction or a really um, sort of nuanced character driven novel, uh, you know, more about character and relationships as it than about plot, I, it's not really about the, the narrator, it's not about uh, the performance. It's not a performance. It's an inhabiting of the narrative, of the text, of the author's heart and mind. And that is a really special skill. You really have to inhabit the book, whatever it is. And I, I know there's a huge difference for you guys, for your experience as narrators between, you know, nonfiction and, and, a, and a great novel or and even among novel, even in, in fiction, there's such a difference between some lighthearted thing and, and some, you know, like historical fiction or whatever. Right. But I really, I, I love it. This is something I want to tell people who are interested in this. I think that... First of all, and this is so obvious, you really need to be a reader. You need to love books. Mm. And I, there's that sweet spot, that, that moment, that thing that happens between reader, and I do mean reader, not listener, reader and author, that same special relationship between an author and a reader, when you're curled up in your chair and it's a weekend and it's raining out and you've got your cat in your lap or your dog or whatever, and you're like, I, th- it's joyful to be inside someone's head who is so focused and so eloquent and has taken the time to really think through a subject, whatever they're writing about, wh- whatever genre it is. Mm-hmm. That is what I am looking to, I am looking for my narrators to bring that experience to the consumer and the listener. In other words, I want, because it, but it's a whole new layer. It's a much more sophisticated version because it's, it's, it's not, you know, uh, private and silent and intimate between your brain and what you think the author's brain and heart were doing when they wrote it. It's a, at the same time that it's, I don't want a quote unquote performance. It is a performance. In other words, you are conveying that for posterity for like, you're recording it. So 
it's kind of, I don't know, it's such a challenge and it's so cool. And I just hope that the, I really like to work with people who are very appreciative of the process of writing a book and what an author goes through and um, author care. I mean, my favorite people in this entire business are my authors and my narrators. And it is the alchemy that can happen when it, when it's cast, when it, when a book is cast well, when a book is written well, and then it's cast well. I mean, it's really cool. It's just kind of, kind of magical. It is magical. And, it, and yeah. it, I wish that there was enough time to really appreciate it and direct every book and read every book. I think that's the, that's the flip side, the bad thing about, you know, audiobooks being exploding and, and just the sheer keeping up what is yeah. it? Something like 800,000 books are published a year in this country or something like that. And so know. many of them are audiobooks. I, I mean, almost everything. It's an audio yeah, book. I, I think that last year, the number that I saw was something like 70,000 audiobooks. Um, Just audiobooks, but like, yeah. Might've been, but then, might've been higher than that. I don't remember. I know that a couple of years before that, I think the last APAC I went to, they were talking about like 50 or 55,000 or something like that. So that's um, amazing. Yeah, Do you know that when yeah. in the in the mid nineties, when I was a producer at Bantam Double Day Dell, there were I am not kidding. There were basically fourteen post production audiobook like independent contractors out there in the country. That was they, it. We were all working with the same people. Yeah, yeah. and they're still out there. Yeah. I'm not going to name names, but you all know who you are. You're still out there. Yeah. And um, yeah. so yeah, a lot of experience. I'm all over the place. I'm sorry, Rich. I'm like, no, that's, that's fine. So it I'm sounds like, like, it sounds like in terms of genre, you are all over the place and that you direct, produce, work on titles in all kinds of different genres. Not I do. Just, not just the narrative nonfiction that you no. like, but also all kinds of other stuff. I love, I love narrative nonfiction. I love memoir. I love a good novel. Uh, I love, um, I mean, I honestly, I can't think of anything I don't really like. Oh, well. All right. No, I can't, I can't say it because I'll, that wouldn't be cool. There's things yeah. that I think are, I'm look, I work in publishing. I came from journalism. I'm a huge, obviously uh first amendment person, but mm -hmm. honestly, there's some things that are like, uh, that okay, shouldn't even be out whatever. there. No, yeah. I totally understand. I just heard somebody recently talk about the fact that, well, I work at this company and well, you know, they work with this company and that company publishes stuff. In this case, it was political. It was on one far end of the spectrum that this person was not right. in alignment with. And they said, but it comes with the job. I mean, you know, we have to deal with these things because we're working with everybody, marketplace of right. ideas, you know, all kinds of ideas like that. And so I totally get it. There there are yeah. certainly narration projects that narrators don't like. And I know. one of the questions that I ask all the narrators that I talk to is, what's your line? What what won't you do? Anything? There right. are some people, and, and I don't make judgments. I mean, there are some people who say, I don't give a shit. I'm, I'll narrate anything. I don't care whether That's it's cool. erotica or... <laughs> Please send them to me because I do get some books that are hard to cast because of their messages. And yeah, I do so, have. A so they'll say whether whether it's erotica or a political side that I completely disagree with. I'll do anything. There are other people who say, no, I'll I'll do erotica. But if there's non-consensual sex, no. Other people, oh, yeah, you know, I don't I, I know narrators who say I don't do fiction. I only narrate nonfiction. Really? There are, you know. Wow, oh, yeah. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so everybody's got a different Why would line. Somebody, that's so interesting. So I think it's because look, maybe they're intimidated because they're not trained. 
no, I don't think it's intimidation. I think it's choice. And, and I, and I feel like if what you like, if what you want to spend your time doing is this, and what somebody's asking you to do is that, and you have enough work doing this, then do it. You know, right. <laughs> that's, that's your choice. Oh yeah. If you have the so, luxury of choosing, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I will say I, it is look, let's face it. Most actors are fairly, I I think this is safe to say they're fairly progressive minded folks. And I think, I think most creative people are fairly uh, open-minded progressive folks. My impression it, is the same. I don't, I don't know any specific data, but my impression is the same. I feel, yep, yeah, exactly. But I will say it is sometimes hard to cast the conservative uh, books, but there are a few actors, a few narrators who will, <laughs> they'll read them. They'll use a pseudonym and then mm -hmm. they'll donate a percentage to like, right. you know, the party yeah, that they believe in. And I I've, love, I've, I, thank God for them. Yeah. I, I think that's great. I think that's yeah. great. But um, it is hard. And I, I'm proud of, I have, it's irksome, but I have had people just say, no, I'm not going to do it. And I'm secretly like, wow, that's so cool. But I'm also like, oh shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now what? <laughs> who, who am I going to get to read this? But yeah. yeah well, so I, it sounds I, like, you know, I, it sounds like you, it. you spend a hell of a lot of time working on audiobooks. What do you do when you're not working on audiobooks? Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. Like, Wait, there's time where I'm not yeah. working on audio. Sleep, that's it. <laughs> um, gosh. Well, I uh, hmm. I wish I had time to read. Um, I wish I had time to listen to. A lot of a lot of us narrators feel the same way. <laughs> I know. I can't remember the last thing I read for pleasure. I hate to say it, but I can't. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time. I tr I'd like to spend time in the wilderness. Um, uh, but that doesn't happen as much as it should, and what am I doing? I don't know. Probably baking something I shouldn't be eating, probably <laughs> eating too much sugar, uh, probably, probably dealing with something, some annoying thing about, you know, being a single mom. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm probably hanging out with my dog. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm traveling. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not doing enough because there's just so much work there's but you so did say work. that that um Hachette has hired more producers recently which is yes we have two more hopefully two going more. to give you a little bit more free time yes and it made a huge it actually made a huge difference um, that's good i i it went from feeling like a little bit of a factory setting like i i often felt for the first couple of years here uh like lucy and what's her name at the chocolate factory like oh yeah yeah shoving, you know like <laughs> i always say like i feel like i'm you know, on the assembly line, shoving the audiobook stuff in my shirt and like <laughs> eating it. And like, you know, it's just like, get, get it done, get it out, get it done, get it out. And yeah. uh, that can be a little frustrating because every title is so different. It's a different animal. Sure. It really is. I mean, it's such a, yeah. like that alchemy we were talking about, you want to try to achieve that with every title and it's hard to do. Um, gosh, it's weird. I'm drawing a blank. I apparently don't have a life. Um, I don't know what I do. I don't know what I do, but I, I know what I'd like to do. I have some lots of things I'd like to do. I, I mean, I'd like to do some writing again of my own. I 
I miss writing. I was um, wondering about that since you'd gone into journalism and you liked the long form and, and you, you mentioned writing. I was I wondering spent so much time on. with other people's writing, but I haven't had a chance and I need to do it. I need to get up early and get my I know stuff there have done. been several, several narrators recently who have come out with books. Julia um, Whelan. Of yep. So yep. Julia, Travis Baldry, yep. um, uh, you know, a few, few other narrators. I've been I know waiting of. and wondering why no one's been writing about this. And I have an idea that I actually pitched to somebody who, thought it was a good enough idea that he's like, you know, you should write a treatment and give it to me and I'll give it to Norman Lee or whatever. Anyway, I'm not going to say who it is, but he's a narrator who's, and I, and I, I absolutely think that there needs to be a Netflix style audio series. If anyone listening wants to help me with this, the, the drama involved in a publishing house, in the audio division, before uh, you even get to the booth. I mean, it is so, uh, it is such a cool premise, I think, because, you know, there's so many egos involved. You've got agents, you've got sometimes movie stars, you've got, you know, actors, you've got all big authors, you've got big editors, and you've got this thing. And then, you know, each episode could be like, the title of the episode could be like the title of the book. Uh, uh, of the, that particular genre, like an entire one episode could be like, okay. This oh, whole, I love that idea. Sort of like, yeah, sort of like um, a combination of, you know, The Office or Parks and Rec, that sort of quirky humor. Uh, I mean, I'm not a big TV person, but it could be just an audio thing. Right, but then each episode is based on, you know, so this one is on the rom-com, this one is on the classic. Exactly. This one is on erotica, yeah. Each episode is a different genre. And then yeah. the storyline would basically about the all the Michigas that goes into making, to getting the producer and the narrator and all the people to the point where you're actually in the booth. So there's so much drama before you even get in the booth to read right. the actual drama, to read the story. Cause we idea. all have these amazing war stories, right? Cause we really do. I mean, the blooper reels that we have, I mean, God, you know, the money you could make, it's crazy, but um, we all have these crazy war stories. And like, you could, you could have, um, I think you could, I, could, I would love to have fun with that idea. If anyone wants to do it with me, I just don't have the time right now, yeah, but yeah. there's so many characters, so many characters. And, um, and then the, the well of each episode would be, you're finally in the booth. And of course, actors would do all these cameos. You guys would be the stars. You, right. The narrators that are actual audiobook narrators would be in the episodes. And then you would get in there. And then at the, at the heart of each episode would be, a good 30 seconds of true, beautiful uh, narration of that yeah. book. You know, and it, I think it's, I think it could be a lot of fun. So I have a, like, that's just one of a billion ideas. Like I have so many ideas, like everywhere I go, I still hear snippets of dialogue. I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember meeting a guy on a subway 20 years ago and he had just finished like a marathon or something, a rent running. And he looked like a human whippet. He was all like muscly and sinewy and, we had this interesting conversation and I, 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 I wrote down everything we talked about. I was a big fan of keeping a notebook and like, and this is in the days before smartphones and voice sure. memo, but like, yeah. uh, you know, everywhere you go, there's dialogue everywhere you meet, there's stories to tell. And I wish I had time. I want to learn to write plays. I want to do audio plays. I want to do original stuff of my own. And I think at some point, the next phase of my life, whenever that is, and I'm, I'm getting there, <laughs> yeah. getting up there. Um, that's 
I'd like to to write my own stuff and then work with all of you guys to make it come to life. I think that'd be so, great. Sounds but like a yeah, great show. Right now, yeah. it's just like lots and lots of audio production. Audio books galore. Yeah. Well, that's great, Lisa. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm so glad that we oh, wow. finally we went- make this work out. Yeah, so. thank you, Rich. I am so glad to talk to you. Um, yeah, and it's nice uh, to meet you, even though I have a feeling we met years ago. But so I I agree. <laughs> I think that with such a small school, it's very possible that we ran into each other, or I'm I'm almost certain we had friends in common. But nobody listening to this wants to hear that conversation. So oh, I know, we but we need to have it. Time. We will. Well, I'm going to reach out to you because I actually do want to talk to you about some projects. But no, I'm that's so, great. That's I'm great. so glad we finally connected. And yeah, I yeah, just so I do want to encourage anybody who is listening who's interested i am that producer like i want uh, write to me in the morning or write to me like before you go to bed so i get it in the morning should i say my email address yeah would absolutely that be, would so, that be crazy so whatever you feel most comfortable with in terms of letting people know how to find you um okay well whether, whether it's an email address a website what whatever is best for you well is great and and i can tell you that what you just said People people love to hear that. They love to hear somebody who is. I I remember hearing at a at an APAC panel, mm-hmm. um, somebody said, "Well, how often should we should we write?" And this person on the panel said, "This There's often, no you know, every every month or two is fine with me." And somebody else said something else, and the third person said, "Yeah, don't write to me." And and so oh, that's every terrible. every everybody who is listening right now is is thinking that's great this is somebody who does this and i know that everybody who's been doing this for any length of time knows that just because they write to lisa khan doesn't mean that lisa khan is going to write you back and say here's your first book i mean it doesn't work that way everybody but I knows wish it that could, and i right want it right to. but the but the fact is that just knowing that somebody wants to get those submissions and actually listens to everything every, well you know, we, i wish we i had hear to, that so i mean i will listen to everything but i have this long list of you know like I try to do that on the weekends and I admit that the past year and a half has been insane and I haven't been very good as I used to be, but I will tell people. So this is what I'll say. Go to the Hashat website on there somewhere is apparently, I didn't even know this is our narrator. There's like a link that you can click in and then put yourself on in our narration spreadsheet. And there's a whole bunch of questions from everything from like, you know, your gender affiliation to your ethnicity, to your languages, to your location, whatever you, sure. you fill in what you feel comfortable with. Um, okay. And you'll be on our website, but also you can write to me directly. And what really, really helps is some, if you use all caps in the subject line and put in like, you know, prospective narrator or something that makes and make it really big because uh, I have to notice it. Um, and do it before you go to bed. So I get it in the morning and, <laughs> and let me think, and I'll try. I, I, I got to say, I love that specificity. <laughs> and I will say, I will say this. If I listen to your thing, I will answer you. If I don't answer you, it doesn't mean I didn't like it. It means I haven't had a chance to listen. And I really, really admire. I just admire the people who do this so much they have so much talent and skill that they've worked so hard on. And yet they have such thick skins, or at least they pretend they do. And <laughs> I can't even imagine going through this. And I, I want to know you and I want to hear you just stay with me. And by the way, I think every month or longer is perfect. If you write to me every week, I probably will be like, Oh God, but because there's just so many emails, I personally sure. think the sweet spot is 
people, I do tell people to poke me. I say, please poke me once a month. I will get to it. And my email, um, you can, you can, it's just the, the naming convention, like many companies is just lisa.con with a C, C-A-H-N, and then at uh, hbgusa.com. So cool. please write to me and yeah. I will try my best and then poke me a few times and we'll get there. And um, Sounds yeah, great. I, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Yeah, you. I'll put that in the show notes so. so anybody can refer to it later too. So, All right, great. Oh, this is so fantastic. much fun. I hope I didn't say anything out of line or weird, but- uh, Not that was... I heard, but okay. you know, <laughs> everybody's different. If I hope so, the, oh I well. Hope... I hope the wine was good. I I can say that it the, is uh, good. It is that's good. good. I wish I had that's more, good. But now uh, you can't yeah. cook with it because it's gone, right? No, that's all right. I'll, <laughs> that's all right. I'll I'll cook find, with the, find the whiskey else. instead. Well, right. I I can send you the uh, the recipe for the Mexican firing squad. I'm oh, fan. I was going to ask you. Yes, yeah, I'm, Please, I'm a fan. But like, put it on your website or send it to me or whatever. But we'll I talk, will because I want to talk to you more about you know obviously all right. work too. Anyway, Lisa, thank, thank you. I'm sorry it took me so long. This is really fun. No, no, this is great. This and is happy great. Friday and have a great weekend and uh, happy Halloween. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming in. Take care, Rich. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Lisa Kahn for coming in. I really enjoyed hearing about her move from journalism to audiobooks and about her experiences at Hachette, and I hope you did too. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated, as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!